0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
2: at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. Ed Ludlow is off this week. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Wall Street eagerly awaiting NVIDIA's earnings due out tomorrow. Will they get confirmation that shares can meet the sky-high expectations set by the boom in artificial intelligence? Plus, Apple loyalists, well, they're making a U-turn on the Vision Pro. Some returning the device to get their $3,500 back. So is the headset truly the future? and Bitcoin, it climbs for four straight weeks, which means a record high could be in sight for the largest digital asset. We'll have more this hour. But first, let's check in on these markets. And look, just maybe some profit taking ahead of another big week when you're coming to the earnings expectations. S&P 500 actually below that $5,000 level. We've had a run-up in February. Are we going to be selling some of that fact into the second half? NASDAQ off by more than a percentage point as tech gets hits the most. It's interesting that I shine a light on some of the Chinese tech stocks that traded here in the US, off by almost a 2%. Look, the ride to the rescue in the mortgage area in particular, the cuts to the mortgage rates, which are meant to be propping up the property sector, not enough lukewarm response and certainly the Chinese sector in terms of tech also exemplifying that. Move on, have a look at some of the individual movers and what's happening in crypto. Bitcoin, as we said, has marched higher for four straight weeks. We're up 21% over the course of this year alone. And it is notable that we're almost at that $52,000 level. Some bulls, some tech charts really starting to signal that we could eclipse that $69,000 handle we've had in the past move on and have a little look at what's happening in the world of individual movers. And as I say, well, on the global foundries part, we're actually up 2.8%, one of the tech outperformers of the day. Why? Well, because they seem to be getting yet more funding from the government, yet more movement towards supply chain here in the United States and some building in Malta in particular. So we're up at $54.86. Trade Desk pulling back on what was a rampant rise on Friday. Numbers outperformed on the Thursday night. We saw really earnings flourish for this particular advertising company. And, well, they just taking a little bit of profit today, having risen more than 20% on Friday. NVIDIA also seeing some profit-taking. In fact, chips across the board. We wait and we watch on what will happen tomorrow when we get those earnings. I'm so pleased to say that our next guest can really dive into the world of those stocks in particular when it comes to NVIDIA. Let's go to Ulti Tiedemann Global CIO, Nancy Curtin. Nancy, it is great to get your perspective when you've got such an amount of money under assets, $67 billion, and you've really seen round corners when it comes to AI. Are you thinking we'll sell the news tomorrow when it comes to NVIDIA? Well, look, uh,
3: Caroline, first of all, lovely to be back again. You know, there's 771 companies announcing this week, but there's really only one that matters, isn't it? And that is NVIDIA, of course, tomorrow uh, after the close. And there's huge expectations built in. I mean, the stock is up nearly 50 percent, a little bit of correction today, uh, but the stock is nearly up 50 percent, you know, nearly 18 times over the last five years. So it's been on a roll here, 200 and 30% last year. And, of course, uh, last week it edged out uh, um, Amazon and Alphabet in terms of, uh, you know, a size uh, at $1.8 trillion. Expectations are high, Caroline. Uh, I think probably they'll deliver. Who knows, really? I have no insight into that. Uh, but what I can say uh, is the demand for NVIDIA GPU chips seems insatiable uh, at the moment. Uh, and I think it's going to be more about what Jensen says about the outlook, the growth, uh, and the
2: product lineup mm. as opposed to what he actually delivers in the earnings. Are you anticipating that really NVIDIA is a winner's takes all kind of scenario or do we see catch up with other chip makers being able to make inroads into GPUs?
3: Well look, anytime you have a market that's projected to grow 18 times over the next 10 years where NVIDIA's gross margins are 70%, you're going to have competition. Uh, and at the moment AMD and Intel are producing chips that bit rival uh, NVIDIA uh, and of course uh, Jensen calls them the frenemies. Who are those? Uh, Microsoft, Meta, Amazon, they're all developing accelerator chips as well. But look, NVIDIA does not stand still. Uh, They continue actually to bring out a lot of product releases. Uh, You know, we've got the H200, we've got the so-called Blackwell, codename Blackwell, uh, and of course we have the X100 next year. And in each of these, what we expect uh, is to see greater energy efficiency, more processing uh, capability, uh, and Lowering costs as well, and this is going to be mm. all about the volume story heading forward. But you know, don't uh, don't write off Nvidia. They have a pretty strong competitive moat. Uh, let's face it. You know, Nvidia is more than a hardware company. It's hardware and software and tools and development and training modules. This is really important for the development community. Uh, CUDA. Uh, this is a very very important competitive moat that they have. Uh, certainly vis-a-vis uh, AMD and Intel, mm. but also Nvidia. Is cloud uh, and platform agnostic, so that's important for enterprises. If you're developing your large language model, yeah. you may not want to be just hitched up uh, to one hyperscaler. So uh, there's a lot of uh, you know competitive stuff uh, that
2: Nvidia still has in their favor. Talk about the hyperscalers and talk about what we've seen in terms of Alphabet, for example, trying to ultimately provide from the cloud perspective, but also when they have been offering the competitor to Microsoft's. OpenAI and Bing Search and the like. Have you been impressed with the way in which big tech has been able to ensure that they're not being innovated out by some of the more nimble startups? Well I think
3: it's really interesting, Caroline, is that the foundation level, the, the layer, the digital infrastructure, this is the home of big tech. These are billions of dollars. It's uh, just small expense. tech. Yeah, they can't compete, right? But I think what we're seeing is a really interesting trend, which is big tech and small tech working together. Mm-hmm. The poster child for that, of course, is Microsoft uh, and OpenAI. Uh, and then you've got Amazon and Anthropic. Uh, but remember, last week we saw NVIDIA reveal a whole bunch of investments in small technology. Okay. What What's going on there? That's because they need each other. Small tech is not going to have the kind of capital to build the foundation level, but large tech needs the innovation coming from small tech. Uh, The training of models in particular uh, complex areas such as pharmaceuticals, drug discovery, autonomous vehicles, ARM. Uh, You know, this is AI on the edge. Uh, This is AI and everything we carry with us, our phones, our tablets, the meters at home et cetera. So uh, I think this trend of big tech and little tech working together goes under a bit of the regulatory scrutiny but it's also a win-win for both sides.
2: So, Nancy, as CIO, where do you gain that exposure? You're obviously going to be getting into the publicly traded stocks, but where have you found alternatives when you are looking at the private markets? So, three
3: ways that we're looking to play this. Uh, number one, we've got passive S&P 500 exposure. Thank you very much. It's very cheap, so uh, and it means we don't underperform, which is a good thing. Lots of people did last year. Uh, but the second thing is we're adding a global tech manager because we think there's a divergence. You know, last year was all about the Magnificent 70, had to own all of them. Take a look at this year. Nvidia's up nearly 50%, Tesla's down 25 yeah. hello. So divergence in performance. We also think there will be a broadening in the tech space. We see with ASML, uh, ARM, uh, you know, SAP by way of example, lots of companies are going to participate as they become part uh, of the Gen AI mm-hmm. journey uh, and opportunity ahead. And we also think, you know, smart technology managers focused on winners and losers can really think about uh, areas that have not been priced in. So those are two things we're doing in the public market. I talked about big tech and little tech. Uh, We're going to play that through the private markets because we get exposure to leading, leading venture and growth managers that are investing in this space. uh, And we think that's a phenomenal opportunity because if we get that right, uh, those gains aren't like 10% a year. Uh, They're absolutely enormous potentially. So we think that's interesting. But the final thing I'll say, Caroline, is infrastructure. Uh, you know, Jensen, uh, Sati there's a trillion dollars of infrastructure spend to happen yeah. in the digital space. It's not just going to be data centers, uh, you know, fiber optics, towers, uh, edge computing, uh, power. Uh, and we think infrastructure, very interesting, uncorrelated to the equity markets, has a bit of an inflation hedge. That's quite nice, given the numbers we saw last week. Yeah. And we're underwriting that to about a 10 to 12% return we think that's pretty nice as well. Talking diversification,
2: Altie Tiedemann, Global CIO, Nancy, great to have you back on the show. Coming Lovely to soon. be here. Thank Nancy you. Burton there. Meanwhile, let's just talk about one of those magnificent seven that we talk about less in the world of AI, though. Apple's chief operating officer, Jeff Williams, is on a rare visit to Taiwan to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Foxconn. Look, it's the company that helped build the iPhone empire by assembling those devices to exacting standards in factories across China. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, joins us now on what's happening across the board with Apple and how certain companies, he wasn't the only executive to go along to this ultimately quite rare event happening in Taiwan. Often executives don't want to be making big flamboyant trips like this.
4: Yeah, this is certainly a rare event, but like you said, it's a very important occasion. This is the 50-year anniversary of Apple's most important partner. And I don't even think that's arguable. Foxconn builds 90-plus uh, percent of the devices Apple sells, the core of the company's business. And Jeff Williams, as the company's chief operating officer, he really oversees that relationship, along with his top lieutenant, Sabi Khan, who's the senior vice president of operations. So the two of them, we have Reported are in Taiwan for that 50-year anniversary. Tim Cook, who really created that relationship a couple of decades ago uh, when he became Apple's head of operations in the early 2000s, uh, he is not there. Instead, we're told that he sent a, a video message. And obviously, we're all well aware of the geopolitical challenges related to China and Taiwan. Uh, we're aware of the the, the sort of the, the little dance that Tim Cook and other Apple executives have to play yeah. in terms of managing that relationship relationship in China, and perhaps Cook and Apple felt uh, it was more proper for Cook not to go to Taiwan uh, for this event, but rather send two of his top deputies.
2: And maybe he's focused in on the sales or returns of a certain new product that's hit the market with Apple. Mark, what are you talking about with Power On this weekend? <laughs>
4: Yeah, the Vision Pro. I mean, first of all, I don't think Tim Cook is uh, boarded up in a conference room in in (laughs) Cupertino at Apple Park because of this. I don't think Apple uh, is at a crisis or anything with the Vision Pro, but we have heard that the Vision Pro return rate is somewhere between average and above average, depending on the store. Uh, The device itself, we've had some people complain about the bugginess of the operating system, the battery life, and more uh, importantly, the comfort actually being able to wear it for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So people have been sending it back for that reason. And why that's interesting, obviously people buy Apple products and return them all the time. But if you're buying the Vision Pro at the current price from the get-go, it means you're a very early adopter or a massive Apple fan. Those are the people who typically are not returning your Apple products. And so those are the people doing it this time. That's why it's so interesting. In terms of me... I love it. I'm continuing to use it. It's buggy. It gets uncomfortable from time to time, but it's great for watching video. Uh, my hope is that it gets better soon. I don't anticipate the bugs really dropping until a big uh, yeah. Vision OS update. That's the operating system until the fall. Uh, but I, I am banking on some improvements in the not too distant future.
5: This is version
2: one. Mark German. we thank you so much for bringing us all across the board of things Apple.
4: Uh, Bitcoin is is the exit strategy. It, it is the, the uh, strongest asset. So what we see right now is the Bitcoin has just emerged as a trillion dollar asset class. And it's alongside uh, names like Apple and Google and Microsoft, but the difference between Bitcoin and the Magnificent Seven is Bitcoin's an asset class. It's not a company. There's not a lot, enough room in the capital structure of those companies to hold 10 trillion or a hundred trillion dollars worth of capital.
2: Of course, that was MicroStrategy chairman, co-founder Michael Saylor there. Of course, pretty long Bitcoin. His comments come off Bitcoin's recent rally to $52,000. Its price actually tripling since the start of 2023. And now, Bitcoin might even retest a new record high, according to some technical analysis. Now, consider this. The rally includes four straight weeks of increases through February 18th. And According to data compiled by Bloomberg, in the past five years, the cryptocurrency has climbed on average almost 50% over three months after following a four-week winning run. That would take Bitcoin to $78,000 or thereabouts. Now let's move away from just price points to Get a read on where people are putting money to work in VC and flowing into the wider crypto space right now. Despite last year's downturn, the crypto-focused firm Hack VC has actually just managed to raise a $150 million fund dedicated to the digital asset industry. Let's bring Alex Pack on, co-founder and managing partner of Hack VC. And this isn't your first time raising money, and you've raised $200 million in the past. This is sort of a follow-on for what part of the ecosystem? What size of companies, what kind of problems do you want to see fixed here?
6: Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, Yeah, it was a a bit of a challenging fundraising environment uh, now versus prior years, of course. Um, But for us, we're hyper-focused on early stage Web3 venture capital. I know Web3 also is maybe a word that isn't as common on this program than in the last few years. But the thing that uh, excites us the most is basically this this sort of duality um, in our industry where, on the one hand, we've been in sort of this prolonged bear market for a couple years, but we're starting to see all this upswing in terms of prices and surge of interest from the ETF inflows, regulatory clarity around the world. But the thing that excites us the most is that uh, fundamental usage is still growing and still doing really well. So there's millions of people using blockchains and using Web3 around the world, DeFi and stablecoins are a real killer use case, so they're a highlight. And uh, our job is to invest uh, and goal is to invest in sort of the infrastructure that's being built right now that can catapult these use cases to the mainstream over a multi-year period.
2: Might surprise you to know that we do have the odd person on Talking Web 3 from time to time. A lot of them in your portfolios or indeed some unicorns that you've backed in the previous years, Alex. The reason we turn to you is because you do have experience. You have backed some winners. I think of Avalanche. I think of what's happening with DYDX. I think of some of the protocols that you've been in and in... And indeed some of the intersections of Web3 and crypto and DeFi and ultimately artificial intelligence. How are you thinking about access to compute now when you're backing companies like Crusoe Cloud or or Jasper AI when it comes to application of generative AI?
6: Yep, it's a a probably multi-trillion dollar topic right now. So I think broadly where we are in the space is sort of like the mid-90s equivalent of where the internet was is where we are in crypto today, which is to say like a lot of users and a lot of things happening, but the experience of using crypto is really poor Uh, from an infrastructure perspective. There are, uh, it's like slow, it's insecure, there's hacks happening all the time and thefts and things like that. And then the one that you're, the the area you're talking about, which I think is really huge too, is um, this question about how Web3 can help support AI and the reverse. Uh, What Web3 does really, really well is it provides like democratized access to, when it comes to Bitcoin or DeFi, it provides democratized access to financial services and people around the world can get access to dollars and lending and things like that. But uh, the other thing it does really well is democratize access to resources, right? And so one area that's really interesting in crypto AI specifically is this opportunity to basically provide AI compute, like GPUs, um, you know, higher in the chip stack, to uh, AI startups and AI developers around the world. That's something that blockchains are great at there's already several multi-billion dollar companies in the blockchain industry, like Crusoe Cloud, which is in our extended portfolio, and uh, CoreWeave, a few others, that are basically, they started as Bitcoin mining companies that, and they provided cheap compute, and it was also very climate friendly. You would get compute, and and you would get energy from, uh, uh, like in a very cheap way, from Exxon and Chevron that was being wasted, and you would use it to provide uh, power that, would support like the Bitcoin ecosystem and mining. But now a lot of these companies are also providing AI compute and it's <laughs> democratized so we can live in a world now, I hope, once it's successful, where it's not just OpenAI and Microsoft that hog all the, uh, the AI compute and the GPUs.
2: Some pivoting there and some app pivoting. Alex, it's great to have some time with you. Of course, backed by Sequoia Capital Fidelity, Mark Andreessen, it's great to have some time with you on the new fund, co-founder managing partner over at VC. Meanwhile coming up that we're gonna dive into all the news coming out of, well, another key VC player, Softbank of course, with Vision Fund, we'll get into that. Meanwhile, watching shares of Ford. Now, keep an eye on the price points of EVs. We're talking Mac 3 here. We're talking about what's happening with Ford having to cut the cost, ultimately, of their Mustang version of the EV. And this is all as we see sales really being pulled back in EV, but also the supply really ramping up in terms of inventory. So Ford slashing the price of its electric Mustang, Mustang the Mach E, after sales plunged. This is Bloomberg Technology.
6: Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond,
2: OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF. Time now for Talking Tech, and first up, it's a coalition of international law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, the UK National Crime Agency, that have said they have disrupted Lockbit, one of the most prolific hacker groups of all time, including shutting down websites the organisation used for some ransomware payments. Meanwhile, EU regulators announced a formal investigation into TikTok's alleged failure to protect minors who use the video sharing platform, which could result in some heavy penalties for TikTok owner ByteDance. EU Internal Market Commissioner Thierry Breton announced that the social media platform will face a formal investigation under the bloc's flagship Digital Services Act, which empowers regulators to levy fines of as much as 6% of annual sales or ban repeat offenders from the EU. Plus, SoftBank Vision Fund, America's managing partner, Lydia Jett, is leading the investment firm, according to sources. Now, Jett has represented SoftBank on boards of Wii, of Fanatics, of Flipkart, of Kupang, among some other companies. But there's a lot of news surrounding SoftBank at the moment. And let's go to the parent company now. The founder, Masayoshi Sun, is considering the creation of a $100 billion chip venture that would supply AI-enabling semiconductors. The interesting thing is where he's doing this and who with. Bloomberg's Alex Webb has the story. And we should perhaps have no surprise that SoftBank, having taken money from Saudi Arabia into the Vision Fund, is equally willing to build a new chip reality with the country too.
0: Yeah, it's obviously a huge opportunity when it comes to investment. Saudis are sitting on a huge amount of capital. They're trying to, of course, diversify their economy away from oil. This is not news. The fact is that you have to wonder whether Saudis are once bitten, twice shy in terms of the money they put into the Vision Fund, and that that fund didn't seem to deliver quite as much as it promised from day one. But at the same time, we are still seeing Saudi plow ahead with efforts to bolster their domestic manufacturing efforts. Whether this chip chip venture that Bloomberg sources report Masayoshi Son is exploring with some vigour, whether that forms part of it will be fascinating given the, the requirements of the, you know, to manufacture such a thing in terms of mm-hmm. intellectual resources, people you need to actually set up these sort of fabs?
2: It's interesting because we've had a lot of reporting that, of course, one, Sam Altman has been going back and forth to the Middle East and indeed to Masayoshi Son discussing the future of chip making and manufacturing. Saudi Arabia has, what, $100 billion in terms of an investment firm. They have a load of deals that they're announcing. And $150 million with SoftBank is going to be into, what, fully automated manufacturing? What sort of focus can we see coming from Saudi Arabia?
0: So we hear talk of this and that's what's been announced uh, just recently that they are building a new sort of 100 billion, well they're building a new manufacturing and research and development, Conurbation, essentially, Um, much of that is likely to be in slightly old school manufacturing, things like cars, lucid motors, right in the middle of Saudi's manufacturing ambitions.
2: Alex Webb, with all the insight, it's such a global story. We thank you. Meanwhile, coming up, we're going to continue to dig into what earnings mean for more broadly the market. This is Bloomberg Technology. Back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York, at Ludlow. He's off this week. Let's get a quick check-in on these markets because we're seeing a little bit of profit-taking, perhaps as we anticipate Fed speak, as we anticipate Fed minutes come Wednesday, but also the micro is becoming macro here and we're anticipating earnings from Nvidia. Wait with bated breath as to where they can live up to the high expectations. NASDAQ is currently off by a percentage point. 10-year yield, just down about three basis points. We're still trading at that 4.25, let's call it, on the 10-year for that sort of a handle. Bitcoin actually just coming down a little bit, but only a tiny bit, by three tenths We're still near that $52,000 level having exceeded it recently. Move on and look at some of the micro pictures because in fact, actually, across the board, it feels that we're seeing some profit taking today, whether it be in NVIDIA as an individual name off by 5.6%. But remember, it's tripled since the beginning of 2023 in terms of market capitalization. But the stocks, more broadly, of course, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index is actually seeing its worst day since the end of January as we see just chip makers fall across the board. AMDs on the downside as well. The only one outperforming is Global Foundries after its recent deal to build more manufacturing here in the US. But let's just talk about what micro is macro, how much we are all focused on whether the AI hype is real, particularly around NVIDIA. I'm so pleased to say Liz Young is with us, so far ahead of investment strategy. And I mean, is it all about NVIDIA? Do we sort of care much about the Fed when we come to more of a focus on AI right now?
5: Well, I think we always care about the Fed, and and last week was a good indication of that. We're starting to see the data stack up in a way that says inflation maybe isn't solved entirely, and now we've pushed that first cut back to June, so markets are trying to grapple with the idea that... The cutting cycle might start later than we originally anticipated, but this week, number one, there isn't a whole ton of macro data, at least not loud macro data, for the market to queue off of, and NVIDIA's earnings are going to be the story that we all anticipate and wait with bated breath, like you said, to find out. The risk that I see in this, and and not necessarily in the company itself, but the risk that I see in this is that in 2023, we had such concentrated performance. And so far in 2024, we've had a lot of the same. We've had a few fake outs of broadening out in the market, but you've got things like small caps that can't quite get above a certain level. We've seen some sectors broaden out, but others not participate yet. And we've seen that Magnificent Seven turn into more of the Magnificent Four. So. The concentrated performance is still present, and the risk that you have when we have so much attention on one name is that the entire industry group or the entire sector ends up trading just based off of what might happen in that one name. Now, that could be good or bad in the short term, but it does present a, another type of concentrated risk to investors that are invested in, what are, whether it's semiconductors or the AI theme. Okay, Liz, so... Being that diversification is basically everything, do you diversify
2: within where AI can propel either its application in different industry groups or indeed the picks and the shovels? We were talking to Nancy Curtin a little bit earlier about ultimately the infrastructure spend that's going to happen here in the US. Or do you have to get out of the sector and just seek diversification more broadly in other industry groups?
5: Well, it's a tough conversation. It's a good question because it's a tough conversation to have with investors today when really the experience they've had is that diversification hasn't worked, right? They've had concentrated performance. And if you were in the right names, you would have done better than if you were in a diversified portfolio of stocks. So it's a difficult thing to convince people of today. But when you invest in a theme, and this is just broadly how I approach themes and what I would say as a principle of investing, just the way that I think about it, When you invest in a theme, and AI is a theme today, number one, you have to expect that that theme is going to take two to five years, maybe even longer, to really come to fruition, to really mature into what we're expecting it to be. And over that time frame things are going to change. So the way that we see the theme today, the way that we're expecting things to be optimistic about that particular theme today, are probably going to morph. And you can compare it to something like the internet in the late 90s, early 2000s, The original way that we expected the internet to be profitable and exciting was not actually how it ended up being later, or at the very least, there were other things that were born out of that internet boom, right? We didn't know that e-commerce would be a big thing. We didn't know that ad spending would be a big thing for all these companies. So that same thing is likely to happen with the AI theme. So I would suggest when you're investing in a theme, I would suggest investing in it in a diversified way and then keeping in mind that the time frame for a theme is much longer than one year. And right now I think we're queuing off of really short term periods. And Liz,
2: what's so great about having your voice on is that we all can get very myopic about equities this is different asset classes that gain us exposure as well. How many of your clients are asking you, well, what about the bond market exposure I can get here? What about corporate bonds, not just U.S.
5: Treasuries? Yeah, that's another another good thing to, to think about, that obviously over the last three years or even just since the pandemic, equities have taken center stage and there's been a lot of juicy stories about things that have happened in the equity market. Meme stocks, AI, the Magnificent Seven. I mean, the list goes on and on. But... The thing that's happened in the last year, because rates are higher than they've been in 40 years, people started to wake up to the fact that, oh, maybe treasury bonds are not as boring as I thought they were. (laughs) Maybe it's okay to sit in something and get paid while I wait, get paid a dividend, get paid a coupon, and realizing that maybe there's even capital appreciation opportunity in some of those spaces that seemed so boring and vanilla before The thing that I would warn people about, though, I do think that there's good opportunity in the Treasury market, particularly on the shorter end of the curve. But I think yield volatility is here to stay for a while, especially while we sit through this period where we cannot figure out when the Fed is going to cut. And it continues to be more and more volatile every day. I'd also point to some of the relationships on days, at least in 2024 so far, the relationships aren't working the way that we would expect. Today, yields are down. The Nasdaq is also taking it on the So are small caps. You'd usually expect the opposite. So there is still risk out there. Investors are obviously waiting and looking around a corner for something that might come out of left field and shock them. And I would I would tell people to invest with that mentality. So far, Head of Investment Strategy, so love having you on the show. Thank you, Liz Young. Thank you. Have a good rest of the week. Meanwhile,
2: let's talk about Tinder for a moment. It's expanding its identity verification program with crime on dating apps on the rise. And of course, artificial intelligence actually making it more and more difficult to figure out who's real who's fake. The dating platform will roll out the system in the US and the UK, Brazil and Mexico over the coming weeks and months. It's already been testing the feature in Australia and New Zealand where verified users get this saw a 67% increase in matches compared to those who weren't. Coming up we're going to discuss the latest in the VC space. Portage partner, Stephanie Chu, is going to be on with us. And in fact, she's got a real laser focus on all things fintech. Well, here's a fintech flavor for you. Big deal happening. And it is big, well, it's enormously moving, Discover Financial. We're up 14%. Capital One agreeing to buy Discover Financial Services in the $35 billion all-stock deal. It's going to create the largest U.S. credit card company by loan volume. And the kicker is the CEO of Capital One, 73-year-old Richard Fairbank, saying this is a singular opportunity to bring together two companies that can compete in the largest payment networks. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Time to turn to the VC space starting with Andreessen Horowitz because Well, this firm has upped the ante when it comes to lobbying in Washington to help the defense-focused startups it invests in, in particular. Now, last year, according to disclosures, the firm spent almost $1 million on lobbying, its first official spending on it, and easily the most paid out by a VC firm. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Anna Edgerton for more on this. And I love your story with Lisette, because you go into the details of espresso martinis being sipped on branded glasses while they sort of talk with various lawmakers and their startups. Anna, what has Andreessen Horowitz been doing that's different from other venture?
7: Well, you know, it's not just different than other venture firms, but also different than other industries and other tech companies, because a lot of industries lobby in Washington. A lot of people are kind of walking the corridors of power in Washington, D.C. What's different about this is that it's not just the companies themselves that are developing their relationships with lawmakers. It's their financial backers. So you see... Uh, this American dynamism practice from Andreessen Horowitz, really trying to kind of create a culture in Washington, D.C. that is optimistic about technology that will benefit their investments. So a really kind of interesting strategy from these companies' financial backers.
2: And given the manifesto published across social media at the end of last year by Mark Andreessen, we should perhaps be unsurprising that he is really optimistic and probably slightly bored of all the hauling up in front of Congress of prior bets that made, particularly when it comes to social media and the like. But ultimately, what do they want out of these government discussions? Is it a lighter touch regulation? Is it an understanding of who the players are at this time that can make US more competitive in a new geopolitical landscape? Yeah, it's
7: really a few things. You know, they're almost like I said, trying to create like a new culture in Washington D.C. that's positive about technology. You know, seeing the so-called tech lash where you have lawmakers of both parties really being suspicious of some of the consumer brands like Google, Meta, Apple, and Amazon. But what we have now is kind of smaller, um, defense-minded startups. In some cases, um, kind of uh, you know advanced manufacturing. In other cases, you know, companies that are actually building stuff that are doing things. You know, using technology using innovation in a way that could benefit U.S. national defense and domestic economy. So that's really where Andreessen Horowitz has focused this American dynamism practice. They're trying to kind of change the, the, the calculation in Washington that technology is not something to be regulated, something to be feared, something to be, you know, hauled in to Congress, like you said, to testify in in front of committees, but it's something to be celebrated and something to be used as a national advantage. And that's something we see, especially in relation to the competition with China and things like AI, quantum computing, you know, some of these, you know, cutting edge technologies that will really shape the, the economy and the geopolitics of the future.
2: And a healthy sprinkling of space, too. Anna Edgerton, brilliant story. Go read it on Bloomberg.com. We thank you so much. Meanwhile, let's stick with the world of VC and perhaps well, where well, regulators may or may not be playing when it comes to big M&A in the world of fintech. I'm pleased to welcome to the show Stephanie Chu for today's VC Spotlight. Partner at the fintech focus, focus at VC firm Portage. You've got over $2 billion in assets under management. And boy, you must have woken up today and been like... Capital One and Discovery, uh, this deal might get through. How is this going to shake up fintech investing and M and A more broadly in the space? Do you think?
8: I think this is a really exciting announcement because we've been waiting to see some big M and A news for a little while. If this, I think this is going to be a big question mark for antitrust and the regulators around whether or not this deal will actually go through. But. With the public markets being fairly closed for the last couple of years, the exit options from an IPO perspective have been pretty limited in the fintech space. So seeing a marquee acquisition on in the incumbent area will certainly spur, I think, a lot of discussion on what the M&A opportunities will look like for fintechs going forward. And I hope it'll potentially Bolster the market environment, and we're seeing this on top of a pretty good public markets run mm. in early 24 and late 23. So we could see multiple exit avenues open up for startups this year.
2: And what about also the competitive the competitive landscape and how it changes up? When I think of Capital One and Discover, I think of well, what does that mean for Visa and Mastercard? But you must be thinking, okay, where do my for- portfolio companies gain an edge here? Where are they going to be needed? Where are they going to be necessary? Where can they disrupt? What what areas are you trying to invest in at the moment?
8: I think we've been spending a lot of time. Consumer credit, I think, has been a pretty no-go space for the last little while for VC investors, just given where the market environments have been and cost of capital and interest rates. I think that there are still really interesting investments to be made in that space. In the consumer space, specifically, we've seen a number of large rounds like builds like Monzo get done in the past year or in the past quarter, really. And so I think that there will be hopefully some renewed interest on the consumer side. I think we've been talking to a lot of our financial services, corporate clients, so banks, wealth managers, insurance companies, many of whom service our portfolio companies actually service. And there's been a huge amount of interest in AI. So we're spending a lot of time looking at the The intersection of financial services and some of the new advances in Gen.A.I., it's obviously very new. We're spending time in fraud, $10 billion of fraud, which is a record amount of fraud lost in 2023. Lots of new fraud vectors coming up with Gen.A.I. as well. So an evergreen space that we're uh, many of our corporate partners are interested in learning more about as well. And then finally, in the wealth management space. The democratization of alternatives is an area that we're, we're looking at quite a bit.
2: It's interesting, of course, you mentioned Monzo, which is UK-based. You mentioned some of the other areas of the rounds that built here in New York. How are you seeing the talent growing and where it's growing from at the moment? Has there been some sort of regulatory arbitrage at all that you see globally?
8: I'm not sure that there's been a huge... I actually think fintech has been a generally under invested category. In the past two years, I would say there was a big spike up and down. So I'm not sure that there's huge differences in where talent flows are going. I think certainly AI is the big story of the day. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the talent that we're seeing want to work on problems related to AI. I do think we will see financial services oriented AI solutions where that is, I think, where we've seen a lot of really interesting new seed companies and many of our existing portfolio companies hiring for and or implementing new solutions in the AI space that leverage AI with existing tech stacks.
2: Hmm. We'll see how it impacts us, the user as well, rather than just in uh, support conversations with various chatbots. Stephanie Chu, just always so great to have your expertise on the show. Thank you, partner at Portage. Now, the ex-account of the widow of opposition leader Alexei Navalny in Russia was briefly suspended. A day after it was used to help her challenge Russian President Vladimir Putin over the death of her husband. Now, in a video posted on her account on Monday, Yulia Navalnaya. Uh, accused Putin of killing husband as she announced that she was taking over Navalny's role as opposition leader after his death in a remote Russian prison colony on Friday. We want to talk about the roles and responsibilities of Elon Musk's platform right now because this brief suspension comes just a week after the same platform published a full unedited interview of the Russian president with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Who else to discuss than our very own Kurt Wagner whose book Battle for the Bird which dives deep into the social media platform is out today. He joins us now. And Kurt, all of this concern about the way in which X, as was Twitter, gained a new leadership, suddenly changed up basically most of its employee base, there were concerns about content moderation, first and foremost. How does these sorts of day-to-day headlines make you think about how it's occurring over there right now?
9: Yeah. I mean, clearly this is something that they are struggling with uh, to do at scale, right? I'm told that this particular suspension was done automatically. So it was both flagged automatically, suspended automatically, and then ultimately reversed after a human review. But Again, you know, these are the kinds of complicated sort of issues that these types of companies deal with, and it's sort of interesting because, of course, when Elon Musk was on the outside, this was the exact kind of thing that he might complain about, right mm. that he would say, "Hey, Twitter is being biased because they took this account down um, and now he's on you know the inside, and we're seeing that they're still struggling with the same kind of stuff. So I think this sort of just you know highlights how difficult it is to do this content moderation at scale
2: I mean, your book really chronicles then Twitter's struggles with content moderation when it came to former President Trump as well. And Mm -hmm. I want to gauge your perspective of what you learned through that reporting out and writing and how it pushes us forward to potentially a runoff in an election here in the United States.
9: Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to think about, right, because that was a huge portion of the company, like a huge uh, part of the company's history was sort of this run up to the 2020 election. How they dealt with President Trump how he used the service to, you know, uh, complain about the the voting, uh, complain about the election results and things like that. And ultimately Twitter at the time ended up banning him as we know, but but President Trump is now back, right? And there's a new regime at X that has been very hands-off and basically said they don't want to uh, enforce any of those types of things. So it'll be really interesting to see as we as we head into 2024, one, does President Trump, former President Trump, really start to use X more regularly? And if we get to a point where he starts to complain about the same stuff he did in 2020, right, a, a rigged election, for example, will X step in and do anything about it? And we know that was a huge deal, you know, four years ago. I'm really fascinated to see uh, if this is going to sort of play on repeat again and how they're going to handle it this time around.
2: And talk about alternate universes here or what might have been, because what's so interesting is some of the really juicy details you reveal in the book. For example, who could have led the business other than Jack Dorsey at the time and before Elon, well, took it over? Who was that executive?
9: Yeah, this is one of my favorite details. It's right at the front of the book when Jack Dorsey returned as CEO in 2015, the board was actually considering another candidate, Andy Jassy, who uh, at the time was running AWS. We obviously all now know he's the, the CEO of Amazon today. And it's just a really interesting you know, thought process or thought experiment, I should say, to think about what Twitter would have looked like had the board decided to go with, with more of a business minded CEO versus Jack Dorsey who was a product minded CEO. And that was ultimately the the deciding factor I'm told is that they thought Twitter was a product, a company that had a product problem. So they just decided to go and and bring back Jack Dorsey back. But again, it's just really interesting to think like where would the business have been, um, had they brought in someone who was, you know, maybe a little bit more traditional in terms of their, their business chops.
2: Well, Kurt Wagner, we know how much work, blood, sweat, and tears you put into this book. And congratulations on it going on sale today. We appreciate all your expertise day in, day out on the show. We thank you, Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner. Go buy the book. Meanwhile. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. You do not want to forget to check out our podcast, that there is going to be so much to be digesting, and you can do it on your terminal, online, on Apple, Spotify, or iHeart. All of this as we anticipate the all-important numbers coming from NVIDIA after the bell tomorrow. Will they live up to expectations? Will we see AI hype become a reality? Will we see that revenue continue to double and triple? We'll see. This
1: is Bloomberg Technology.